The Lions Share Indie Film Podcast. Hello and welcome. We're here today to talk about uh, an exciting new documentary. It's called The Gateway Bug. So this is a feature-length doc. It's about some of the problems with modern agriculture uh, and how they can actually be solved with bugs, of all things. So I'm talking today with Johanna B. Kelly, that's the director, and Cameron Marshad, who's the writer and editor. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Hey. How's it going? Very well. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Immediately, I think the premise of the gateway bug is fantastic and fascinating and a little weird and a little gross. In a nutshell, it seems to me like it's saying the solution to a lot of uh, modern environmental problems is actually eating bugs. Is that right? Um, I think what we're saying is that a bunch of really useful strategies lie in our diet. The film doesn't just focus on eating bugs, but we do talk about that as one potential solution, which really is directed at reducing our reliance on the current forms of protein we eat, like beef and chicken, which are really resource intensive. So the film is mostly about empowering audiences to understand how their diet impacts the environment and what they can do through diet to change the environment on a personal level. And we use entomophagy, the practice of eating bugs, as kind of a hook and a lens through which we can um, look at new strategies to to help the environment. Okay. so. What are some of the problems with America's current agricultural system? I don't think a lot of people are aware uh, that there's anything wrong with, you know, the food that they eat on, on like, the production level. Well, that, that's the problem. So there, it, it stems from a, number of, from a number of sources. One is education. As you just pointed out, a lot of people don't know there are many issues with our agricultural system. Uh, one issue, for example, among many dozens, really, is that we're growing tons and tons of soy and corn uh, to feed livestock. And soy and corn are highly detrimental to our soil, and uh, it's just a really bad crop to be growing at such large scale. And they're very resource-intensive. So, for example, the industrialized agricultural complex uses 80% of fresh water on Earth. As most of your listeners probably know, we're really going through a lot of problems with access to fresh, clean water for drinking and human survival. So using 80% or on corn and soy to feed to cows for humans to eat is a really, really big problem. It's responsible for 91% of Amazon deforestation. So what Cameron's talking about is these resource-intensive practices that are really detrimental to our environment. Um, Cattle also release a lot of methane and ammonia into the atmosphere, which is contributing to global warming. And essentially what we realized is if all of these problems, if the primary contributor is the industrialized agricultural complex, let's look at what we can do to shift that into a more sustainable model that might reduce global warming and improve the environment. And one of those ways we can shift it would be eating insects. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm hung up a little bit on this idea, yeah. but... That's okay, it's true. That's what our film is about. And it's not just humans eating insects, but animals. So as Cameron was talking about the corn and soy we're growing, that's primarily going to feed the cattle that we're eating. The chickens and fish, they're natural food in the 
wild when they're eating what they want isn't corn and soy. It's it's insects and a bunch of other stuff. But insects are a really great um, product for feed because they contain all nine essential amino acids, more protein than spinach, more calcium than milk, fiber. They're just a superfood. So if we could switch to a more useful food that made those animals healthier and rely less on resource-intensive products like corn and soy, then it's a win-win situation. And when you feed these animals corn and soy, for example, uh, foods that they don't normally eat, you have to give them antibiotics because their digestive systems become bloated and they develop diseases and, you know, with all those antibiotics come superbugs and, you know, the list goes on. One of the most interesting things for me as I watched the documentary was the idea of, you know, the food that we're eating, what does that eat? Uh, so, like, what are the cows eating? You know, what are the fish eating? There was a, a really interesting point where, you know, we're trying to fish less from the wild, so we're farming fish, right? But what do you feed the farm fish? We're actually feeding them fish that we've pulled out of the ocean. So it seems like this really self-defeating, vicious cycle of um, it's, it's unsustainable, basically. It really is. It's unsustainable, it's illogical, and there's no real reason behind it because obviously doing unsustainable practices to try to support sustainable practices is completely defeatist. And that specific example around the fish feed was really what drew us to this whole topic. Our friend Tyler Isaac, he's a marine biologist uh, based out of California. At the time, he was at UCSB. He was telling us all about the uh, wild fishing that was occurring, and you're right. It's it's such a, it's so illogical to be pulling out wild fish to feed to farm. Not farmed fish is to reduce our reliance on wild fish. So basically, one day we're having brunch with Tyler Isaac, who's actually one of the main characters of our film, and over the course of a brunch, he explained all of this to us: the overfishing problem on Earth, the industrial cultural problems we're facing, how all of this is contributing to the environment, and we were so astounded and so inspired by his research that he was doing surrounding this and surrounding the prospect of feeding um, animals insects to eat, and he went on to describe sort of human consumer products as well. The brunch, we were like, wow, we have to make a documentary, and that's exactly how the film started. From that one day in Europe, 2015, Within two years, we'd, we'd shot, edited, and created the film, and we're having our premiere back in Santa Barbara, where it all began. I love hearing these origin stories, because you know every good film I've ever covered started at brunch or in a coffee shop or at a bar somewhere. Like, I think if you're a filmmaker, the secret is to go out really often with your friends. Like, Definitely. It's true. And, like... and surround yourself with interesting, intelligent people. Yeah, that's where you derive your ideas. So... Tell me a little bit about both your backgrounds. I mean, what, what cued you up to be ready to capitalize on this idea? Uh, what experiences did you have that, that made you feel like you were ready to, uh, to make a feature documentary? Sure. So I have been uh, freelancing in film video in New York uh, for several years prior to uh, that February 2015 meeting. And I've made a few short films and worked on a number of friends' projects. So you know, at, at that point, I was really interested in making my own uh, project. And my background was a designer. Cameron and I actually met on a feature film that I was production designer on called Like Lands. And I'd sort of been working on features. I'd done a handful, at least 
Sims 5 as production designer. And during that practice, I discovered that, you know, I kind of was constantly wanting to do the AD's job and constantly wanting to do the director's job. And I just found myself becoming the associate producer on many of the projects because I was highly organized and motivated and I really enjoyed the whole process of filmmaking. So I had actually just wrapped a horror film that I was production designer on when right before we'd gone to that brunch. And on the film, as per usual, I was just like, oh, if I was running things, if I was producing, I would have done things differently. And so the idea that that we could actually make our own film, and especially documentary where you don't have to have a huge budget ready to go because it's it's a pretty low-key, low-crew, low-pressure um, environment in the beginning, it certainly was for us. I don't think we set out knowing that we were going to make a feature film. I think we set out saying, this is an interesting topic. Let's just start shooting, start editing, and see where we land. And being that we'd had so much experience prior in film, we just realized like, well, of course it's a feature film. This story is way too big to tell in a short form and got those skills. And I think it was a really, really fun film to be for both of us to be producers on as first time feature. I think that step from just being involved in film to actually making your first film is a huge one. Uh, And it's a very intimidating one. I think, one of the problems that stops a lot of people is, you know, how do you come up with the funding? So is it true that you raised a lot of it through Kickstarter? We raised at least a third of it, yeah. I think, as I was saying, like, documentary is a lot less pressure to raise all of the funds at once. We were able to coordinate the interviews we were shooting to occur in between our other film gigs, which were actually paying us. You know, I'm sure it's pretty obvious to most people, but documentary filmmaking isn't a, a fundraising revenue. Documentary films don't tend to make a lot of money, so we were never intent on investing a lot of money in it. It was just kind of our side project for a while until it grew to our major focus when we realized that it was a feature film. But initially, we were using our own equipment. It was always just the two of us sometimes you know one extra sound guy or one extra camera person and we would just sort of use our own funds to rent cars and go and crash on people's couches in certain cities shoot a couple of our interview get back to new york cameron would dit and sort of start the editing process we'd go on to our other projects projects for other people's films and then that would wrap and we'd do another interview and so i think it's sort of <clears throat> It was self-funded, but in a very low-key way, in a very achievable way for most people, I think. The, the, basically, the minimum viable product in terms of the, the minimum equipment needed, the minimum crew needed, and we really just focused on character and story and location as much as we could. And it was only when we got to post that we realized, oh, there's a bunch of crew members that have skills we don't have, like a colorist and... You know, sound designer, sound design. a five-one re-recording mixer, and animation, composing the score. And so we realized, like, okay, so we do, we are going to have to raise some serious money to pay those people. But again, a lot of this was negotiation. We we approached a lot of people who hadn't done a lot of features before, or were willing to work on a lower rate because they believed in the project and they believed that our film stood to change the world in a positive way 
And I think approaching your colleagues in a respectful way and asking them to collaborate with you can be really useful if you've been a kind person in your years working your way up the ranks and made good friends in the industry. Yeah, we did really rely on the in-kind support of a lot of family and friends, putting us up, lending us equipment, uh, providing services at severely discounted rates. So we're really grateful for all of the, the people who helped us out. So despite it being kind of a, a shoestring project on the back end, sorry, shoestring, uh, you got some some pretty big names to join you for interviews. So uh, big figures in the Department of Agriculture, uh, some people from the, the Food Network, you know, cooking programs who people would recognize. Uh, how did you arrange those interviews? Well, specifically for Andrew Zimmer, since he's the, you know, the biggest, uh, biggest guy in our film, uh, we knew a guy who knew a guy worked with Andrew at some point. So basically we, we milked that connection and we eventually got Andrew's uh, contact info and we reached out to him and he was really interested in the project. And just really a generous person to share his time with us. Um, but ultimately what we did was write emails explaining what we hoped the film would achieve and asking people if they were on board with that and if so, could they spare an hour? Ultimately, Andrew Zimmern gave us one hour of his time, you know what I mean? It seems like in a film sometimes people may have spent a lot of time with you, but ultimately he gave us one hour. And I think when you ask very little of people and approach them in a respectful way, you know, they're a lot more amenable to it. We had the same success with the USDA. We researched who we thought would be useful to interview. We found um, the great character, Dr. Sunny Ramaswamy, not only is he a really funny, charismatic, interesting person, but he just so happens to be an entomologist. And we were just amazed and impressed at the chances that the head of the National Institute of Food and Agriculture at the time we were interested in it was a, a studier of insects. And so we reached out to him explaining the film and saying why we thought it was important that his voice be heard. And he, he responded really positively. And he ended up giving us a, a follow-up uh, interview as well uh, for a second trip down to Washington. And and also Andrew Zimmer ended up being quite generous when we uh, came back to Minneapolis for our uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Fest premiere. Uh, he hosted a dinner with us, and he came to the screening and was and participated in a Q and A. So. When he saw the final product of the film, he let us know that he thought it was brilliant. So that was really satisfying to hear uh, his opinion. It was really rewarding to get that feedback from someone we respected so much. People often ask me how, you know, how to get publicity for their films. And I think that's one of the best ways. I, you know, you either stumbled upon it or you were really brilliant to get these, you know, these people that people already know involved. Um, because that kind of endorsement is worth its weight in gold. Uh, I think that's fantastic. Thanks. And we agree. Like this, we didn't stumble across anything, to be honest. We spent months, literally months, researching many, many hours a day investigating who the big players were in the industry and who might be interested and who is already involved. And we really made a lot of sort of mind map connections of human beings in the industry from policymakers to chefs to product companies and we sort of tried to track 
who we thought would be a valuable voice for certain aspects of the story that we were curious to learn. We didn't start out with a script. We started out with a series of questions that we were curious to know the answers to. And I think that that's part of the success of the film was sort of revealing those answers by those people. There's no narration, there's no VO. It's these characters basically telling us the questions, answers to the questions we had and yeah. I've always been curious about that, actually, how much of a, a narrative documentary makers have, bef- you know, before they even go in and start interviewing. And I think it's different for every project, but I do think the, the documentaries that just happen organically are more compelling uh, because it's just what's actually happening in front of the camera, right? There's no spin on it. Oh, yeah, that's what we found without ending in particular. We don't want to give anything away, but I will say that we were one... We shot for a year, we edited for a year. And in that second year of editing, the first three months were kind of fraught with trying to pull together hundreds of hours of footage into a cohesive story with some kind of story arc and character development. And a a few months into that struggle, and it really was a, a struggle, suddenly a bunch of stuff happened, which we see at the end of the film. And it was these characters' lives sort of unraveling and all of the things that we thought shifting into being something completely different. And so we were really, I think like most documentary filmmakers, lucky enough to have the story present itself to us and being able to capture those moments and those stories and their um, intense sort of endings is what gave us our intense ending to the film. So I think we were also just really lucky which is probably what happens to a lot of documentary filmmakers. Like, look at the jinx, you know, catching Robert Durst at the end <laughs> saying, well, I don't want to be a spoiler alert. Yeah, don't spoil that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's it, it's basically miraculous that, you know, some bad things happened, but also a lot of good things happened. And, you know, we remained patient throughout the whole process to capitalize on those developments in the story arc. Let's uh, look at it from more of a macro perspective. Um, environmentalism is a, it's a hot-button issue, right? And especially if you get on Twitter or really anywhere on the Internet, everyone is constantly trying to change everyone else's opinion about it really unsuccessfully, right? It's really difficult to sit down with someone and have a conversation about uh, an issue like this and have them come away with a different opinion than they started. So using a, a documentary platform like this, how do you change someone's mind, especially about something as fundamental as what we eat for lunch. Um, what was your approach toward that? Well, our approach was, this is a depressing topic. One of the reasons people don't like talking about it is because they don't. people don't like change. Nobody wants to be told to stop eating their favorite food. Nobody wants to be told to take extra effort or extra care in any area of their lives. Everybody's really busy. You know, with the internet and social media and mobile telephones, everybody's kind of hounded 24-7 and nobody wants to be told what to do for full stop. That being said, we wanted to present the story as we had seen it. So we saw this as a really inspiring tale of how individuals can change the planet themselves with really easy things like changing what you eat for lunch every day or changing your grocery shopping habits. And we see that as an incredible positive. Like right now, a lot of people are kind of getting down 
because of the political environment and their feelings of powerlessness over things like the environment and we felt like this was a perfect time to tell our story of you don't need to rely on anybody else you can make a difference personally and if you can share that with your friends and they share it with their friends your whole community can start to really change the world um so the good thing about our film is that we've found quite the opposite to what you were saying about change being unsuccessful basically when we screen our films at film festivals we bring a bunch of edible insects along we bring the easy palatable protein bars um, by people like Exoprotein and Shapur who have generously donated some for us to bring to our screenings and we also bring roasted crickets and mealworms that have been cooked and have barbecue flavours or you know lime flavours added to them but they're still the insects pretty much in their original form and we find you know a good portion of people completely uninterested in trying them when they walk into the cinema they screw their noses up and no no oh no thanks which always surprises me because i'm like you're open-minded enough to come to watch this film but you're not open-minded enough to try some food for free you know and then by the end of the screening we usually do a q a and 100 percent of the people in the audience are keen to try the bugs by that stage which is just astounding so we've found that through this film, it actually is quite easy to change people's perspectives. It's education, it's information, and armed with that, you know, people are better equipped to make intelligent, informed decisions. And we've found that so inspiring. It's probably been the most rewarding part of the filmmaking process to, to, to see that our film has changed people's minds. I've been talking with uh, Johanna B. Kelly and Cameron Marshad. They're the writer, editor, and director, respectively, of The Gateway Bug. That's uh, a feature talking about how a lot of the problems with the environment and with agriculture can be solved uh, by using more sustainable food production solutions. So I do have just one more question for you guys, and it, you know, I'm sorry, but I have to ask if you've eaten bugs. I mean, what are, what are they like? Sure, I've eaten a bunch of bugs um, a, a few different times at a number of different events and in different situations and actually the first time I ate bugs was before we even started shooting uh, and it was it was between the brunch date that we had with my friend Tyler and our first interview and I went online and I bought a bag of frozen crickets uh, a pound of frozen crickets and I started cooking with them and I started like frying them with garlic and putting them on eggs and being really pedestrian about it as pedestrian as you can be with a pound of frozen crickets. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. And some of the other bugs that I've eaten um, include ants, ant eggs, um, black soldier fly, perched fat, which is probably the most interesting one that I've had, scorpion, uh, I think uh, tomato hornworm sushi was one that I had, a, a number. I think I've had more that I... I, I can't really remember, but um, yeah. Also, all the products we have in our film. There's the bug bolognese. Oh yeah, there's cricket the and mealworm bolognese. Uh, there's cricket flour pasta. There's all the protein bars. Chips. Chirps chips, which are um, like a bean-based chip that has uh, cricket flour in it. So there are a number of products on the market, and there are also a lot of like there are 
almost 2,000 edible insects that we know of on Earth. And the main ones that we eat here in the U.S. are grasshoppers and crickets and mealworms and, and uh, those sorts of things. Well, where can people watch The Gateway Bug? Uh, what's the next step for it? Uh, the next step is we're going down to Australia for the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on July 16th. It's going to be screening at Cinema Nova, and that's that's the next uh, film festival. And we're currently in distribution negotiations, so we're hoping for a release by the end of the year on iTunes or Amazon or something like that. Okay, wonderful. Well, I watched it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very well done, and I thought it was a, a fantastic treatment of really kind of difficult subject matter. Um, but I tell you what, I'm a lot more open-minded toward eating bugs now than I was yesterday. So <laughs> good work, guys. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. so much for having us.